passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right. I am very happy to be joined by this individual. He is one of the leading hockey analysts in the country for Rogers Sportsnet. can also be heard weekly on 31 Thoughts, the podcast, alongside Elliot Friedman, but in a land far, far away, he was one of the most prominent wrestling reporters in the industry, and he is dusting off that hat for a favor to yours truly today. He is Jeff Merrick returning to post-wrestling. Jeff, how are you? Uh, I am well, John, as you well know. Anything for you. And yeah, it's been, um, it's, it feels like a million years ago, but then watching the, the Benoit documentary over the weekend, it seemed as it all comes sort of rushing back, and you were right there with us with live audio wrestling, it seems as if it was kind of just yesterday and i wonder if that's just a byproduct of it was a tough emotional thing and i honestly john like i i think i think psychologically i really parked all of it in a part of my brain that i just haven't been able to go back to really i mean in casual conversation you do certainly when you're talking to people you do but to really be upfront and face to face with it i honestly i don't think i have up until this weekend from when when chris passed away yeah, it's it's one of those stories that it's always lingering, like covering this day to day. Like there's always like the the Benoit that weekend that exists. But I'm kind of curious how you approach this because, you know, I, I got the screener and kind of just put it aside. And then one night, just kind of on a whim, I went to start it. I was five minutes in, Jeff, and I just I wasn't ready to just dive into this thing at, at this point. I was I had to put it off for several more nights before I could sit down and really kind of relive what was a tumultuous summer, realistically, that 2007 was. I can only imagine for you, um, with your relationship to Chris, what kind of an undertaking this was to kind of go back and relive so much of this. Yeah, like you, I had to watch it alone. I had to watch it uh, all by myself. Uh, my kids had gone to bed. Uh, my wife had gone to sleep as well. And this was this past Saturday night, and I'm like, okay, I want to, uh, I want to watch this thing. And I, honestly, I had to, I had to stop at a number of different times, just because there's, there's certain parts of your, and it sound like I'm this old guy here, and I guess I am. There's, you know, certain parts that you want to stop and you want to think about, and you want to see where your memory takes you. Like this entire, the, 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 the two documentaries, you know, sort of unlocked a lot of memories that I had totally forgotten about and conversations I had totally forgotten about and anecdotes and stories um, in conversation with Chris that I had completely forgotten about. So I made a really deliberate effort that when a memory was triggered that I was going to stop and just 
think. You know, I was just up there, you know, in my room watching this thing with a cup of tea and just whenever something would get triggered in my mind as a memory, um, I just paused the documentary and let it sort of take over and try to open up my mind as much as I could to see what types of memories could come back. Because like, honestly, John, like, as I mentioned off the top, I really think that I shoved a lot of this stuff down. Like I really crammed a lot of this in my brain and, and locked it up with a key and, and tried to hide it. Um, and then I found that key on the weekend and, and it opened up once again, but yeah, no, this was one, this was one that I had to watch, uh, all by myself, uh, all alone. Um, just because I, I wanted to make sure that, um, I could pause it a lot because I knew there'd be a lot of memories coming out and I didn't want to just watch it once and then park it and not give my brain enough opportunity to sort of play with itself and, and, and see where all the memories took me. You know, and this probably plays into some of those memories, but I think anyone from the outside can look at Chris Benoit that this was an extremely guarded individual. He did not let that shield down in front of too many people. And I think you would be in that company of guys that he did let in. Can you tell us a bit about the relationship with Chris covering him while he was performing yeah. and how that kind of grew into a friendship between the two of you and also working together through his website? Yeah, I first met him at Off the Record uh, when I was working there with Lance Burke. Um, they would, you know, bring in a lot of, uh, as you remember, uh, then WWF guys because Raw was was backed up on Monday, um, and uh, it was a, a natural it was a natural lead in. Like it was a great complimentary program, and Lance Burke did a great job of it. And Chris was one of the guys that I met, and we hit it off right away and talked a lot about Japan. Shocking. And talked a lot about Stampede and the Dynamite Kid. And we just honestly, it was very casual and just kept in contact. Uh, and then through uh, a group called Competitive Communications, um, we formed a separate company and started uh, to do websites for wrestlers, Trish Stratus and uh, Perry Saturn, and Lance Storm and, and, and Chris Benoit. And then the relationship just grew from there. And we would talk geez, for a number of years, Chris and I would talk daily, more so when he was on the road, obviously, when he was at home, um, you know, we wouldn't talk very often, I didn't want to bug him. Um, you know, when you're when you had the schedule that Chris had, you know, your one day home is just traveling there, uh, you get a day and then the following day is preparing to get back out on the road, I tried to leave him alone as much as possible. But listen, on the road, you know, you get lonely, you can get angry, you can get cranky, you can get sad you can get sentimental you can get defiant like all these things and you want to have an outlet um you know as a as a wrestler to to let it all out like i'm sure you've heard all the stories and you've had conversations with with plenty of pro wrestlers that'll tell you that man like when you're a pro wrestler you're you know you're a you're a pro traveler more than anything else because you know the time that you're actually quote unquote working is, is pretty small whether you're doing a house show whether you're doing tv the time that you're actually in the ring it's quite small compared to how many hours there are in a day and you tend to fill it with conversations and you, you try to fill it with conversations in as much safe space as possible, knowing what the industry is like and how two faced and phony people can be and how everything's a work. And I think Chris was always sort of looking for a, a way to have these conversations with people that he could feel safe around. And I think that's why he struck up such a friendship with, with Eddie Guerrero um, and Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn to an extent as well, but mainly those three and more specifically, um, Eddie Guerrero. So we would be in touch, uh, and I would hear all of his, you know, gripes about WCW. And I remember when he made his decision to leave WCW and 
who was going to come along with them and what they were going to do um, and how they wanted to go about it. And could I reach out to someone at WWF and, and make contact because he couldn't do it on behalf of his group um, specifically. And so I made those phone calls and then just sort of handed it off. Um, but yeah, like the, the phone calls ran the, the gamut of, you know, being sad to being angry to just like, honestly, John, like to just being a human being and having, mm-hmm. you know, human feelings about all of it. Um, and about, you know, even just when we have entire conversations, you know what, you know, the one thing that, that Chris would come around to a lot, because we would talk, obviously we talk a lot about wrestling he would always lament the fact that he couldn't do anything in his mind to be a better promo. Mm. He couldn't do promos. And he would, I remember he would, he would tell me, you know, like if I miss up, a, mess up a spot in the ring, I can go and work on that. Or I know how to punish myself. So I do it better. Yeah. I can get that. I can teach myself physically to do that. I can't teach myself how to do a promo. And part of me feels helpless because of it. And I remember one of his gripes for the longest time with WCW was, you know, they're sticking me out there with a the microphone and I can't do a promo. You know, we were talking about, you know, why don't they put me with Arn? You know, or how can they, how come I can't get someone like Paul Heyman? How come I can't have someone like that? Because what I do is all in the ring. And that really bugged him. Like that really bothered him that there was, I mean, he's so much of a perfectionist and you saw it in his work. It really bothered him that, and this is this is something that you can't really learn. You to, I really believe this. You can't learn it. You got to have it. You don't. And he really lamented the fact that he didn't have the ability to talk people into the building. That was a, in his mind, a significant. I mean, you look at Chris, and he's like the best wrestler in the world. And all he could focus on was um, the fact that he didn't have the necessary microphone skills, which were commensurate with the spot that he occupied in the world of professional wrestling. He, he was frustrated that he wanted to do better, but he didn't know how and couldn't come up with any way that he'd get better on the mic. And that was so interesting because that was this glaring hole with his presentation. And yet when he would sit down with you and do interviews, he was always a very compelling, very much tell it like it is kind of interview. And on the website, like this predated podcast that you were doing these updates with Benoit, audio updates Almost on yeah. a week on a weekly basis. I wonder if that even played into his idea of just being more comfortable in a public setting, uh, speaking as well. Maybe you know I used to always because he would always ask me, "What should I do? What should I say? How can I go about this?" And I would say, like honestly, like the best answer is always be yourself. And you know, generally, um, you 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 present the most compelling version of yourself when you're quiet. And I've always felt that a quiet heel. Is, is a lot cooler than an over-the-top one. And you always tell them that, you know, they wanted yelling and screaming and all that. And he goes, that's not me. That's not, that's, I'm not comfortable being that guy. And I remember talking to him about, you know, when you're putting together your promos or you're working with a writer, you know, make sure it's you because we can all tell when it's not. Like you're uh, generally, you know, out there as a performer, you're a quiet, intense person. Make sure your promos reflect that. But he was always being, you know, handed scripts and ideas that all called for him to be, you know, over the top and angry. And I think that was that was part of his frustration with uh, with WCW as well. Did you sense uh, a notable change? Because you know, this is someone it's brought up uh, in the documentary by Chris Jericho. His first job was wrestling. His last job was wrestling, and he had yeah. 
that long one-year period when he went down for the neck fusion surgery that he did not have that outlet for a year. Did you sense like a difference in Chris during that year away from things where he, he didn't have th- this outlet that he's had his whole, whole career? Yeah, he became, and again, that was, that was an interesting year too because we didn't talk a ton that year, uh, mainly because, well, a couple of reasons. One, my career and where, where he was, and I, I can recall specifically, he didn't really want to talk about things that much. Like whenever there was, remember there was one incident where he had like a, a pinched nerve or something like that. It's mus- muscle atrophied on his on his right arm, and he was really really sensitive about it. Um, that that his appearance wasn't what he wanted it to be, and his response was shut down and don't talk about it. And he would internalize everything. Like he, the things that he had a hard time coming to grips with. I mean, I'm sure outside of conversations with much closer friends than me and Eddie Guerrero comes to mind um, right away. I mean, he really didn't let a whole lot of that stuff out. So uh, that the, the, the time when when Chris was off, we didn't talk a ton. And I always sort of chalked it up to, well, you know, I don't I'm not going to I'm not going to bug Chris a whole lot. He's this is a time for, you know, him and his family. And he's away from the industry right now. And we would we would talk casually. And, and every now and then, but not about anything profound. Um, I, I think that's, I think Chris became most introspective, at least with me anyhow, when he was on the road uh, and was a, uh, away from everything. But that year, there are much, there are much better authorities on that year with Chris Benoit than me. He was, I don't want to say distant, but I know that at least to me, he really didn't want to talk um, about not being, you know, Chris Benoit, the wrestler. Uh, this documentary, to me, it's it's as much about Eddie as it is Chris Benoit. It just seems like that was his yeah. – it really felt like this was this guy's last line of defense. And if you go back to that Eddie tribute show, it, it's, it was painful at the time. It's haunting in retrospect. Chris Benoit, this this man who has presented himself in such a way to the public for so long – breaking down in front of everybody on, on television like this this shattered this this man yeah i'm not sure what it's like now john you, you can you can tell me uh if it's similar to what it was like in, in in chris's era but you know when chris was was performing like it was hard to make like to be blunt it was hard to make real friends like it was, yeah. it's hard in an industry of workers to make friends like legitimate friends no stab you in the back person no talk behind your back but like really like to make a friend where you can, you know, share your, your innermost thoughts and, and feelings. And that was, and that was Eddie Guerrero. And I think it's born out of, it is all, and they, they, they do mention this and Chris used to tell me about it every now and then too, how much he hated Eddie um, when they worked together in Japan. And then they became the best friends in the world. Like they were inseparable. Um, and I can remember, geez, this was, this was frightening. So I'm not sure if you're, I'm not sure if you were out with us that night, it was one day before, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the pay-per-view, the one in Toronto, 1999, where Chris worked with Jarrett and then Bret Hart on top. Mayhem. Um, mayhem. That's yes. the pay-per-view. So Chris was working twice. So we're out to dinner uh, at a restaurant up at, um, in, in Toronto at Young and Eglinton. And Chris, Eddie, I think Dean was there. Not sure if Perry was there. I was there. Not sure if any of the law crew guys were there. My ex-girlfriend Sarah was there with us as well, and you know we got into it pretty good. Got into the red wine pretty pretty good that night. And I remember looking over and I'm like, "How are these guys going to perform tomorrow?" 
And I remember walking out of the restaurant, we we're going to get a cab and both Eddie and Chris stepped out onto the road to get a cab and a car, like, honestly, John, within like a couple of centimeters of both of them just go whizzing by. And I'm Jesus. like, Oh my God, like that's a one that would be obviously tragic for both of those guys. I'm like, Whoa, there's your pay-per-view. <laughs> Jeez. And they both sort of looked at each other and laughed. Like this was like, well, there's another experience we just shared, Daddy and Chris. And they were just like, honestly, like they had the most wonderful, they had this like really cool relationship that was like fun and respect and hard work and love and mutual respect and adoration. Like I'll never forget that. Like this car, John, was like whizzing down Eglinton, approaching the lights at Young Street. And they're about like two centimeters away as they step out onto the street and they just looked at each other and laughed. I don't know whether it was a byproduct of the wine or if it was a byproduct of their friendship, but they thought that that was just about the funniest thing in the world. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's very telling. I, th- I think just in, <laughs> you know, in so many different ways, you know, kind of the relationship of these two, that it was, you know, it's, it's explored a lot in the documentary that these two very much parallels in life, but, opposites in death and i think that that is like as what this this documentary any of these you know retrospective looks at this time the underlying question is why and that is a question that to me is is never going to uh, get answered but i'm kind of curious to you of how you viewed a lot of the people interviewed in this documentary because it felt as much like a therapy th- session for those that were most close to Eddie and Chris at this time of just being able to have that, that outlet in, in this documentary to really get their stories out and have, have remorse and also question what, what happened here. Yeah. uh, I think that's true of David um, Benoit. I think that's true of uh, Sandra Toffoloni. I think that's certainly true. I mean, you can see that as they're, as they're speaking and they're, and they're tearing up and, that time is, is, is pouring out of them. Um, and then that wonderful scene at the end where they, they go to take in a, take in a match and uh, Jericho meets them afterwards. And you start to see the beginning of hopefully some type of bond um, between the two families once again. But yeah, I don't think that it is possible to sit down and talk about something like this being as close as you were and are to it without there being an element of, therapy to it or needing to sort of unburden yourself um unburden yourself of uh, uh of this you know this these thoughts that you're hanging on to and i think anger is an interesting one too i think that you know a lot of people who still harbor anger towards chris benoit and i un- first of all i understand it like what he did is as malenko talks about in the in the documentary, like it's, it's borderline or well, he, the words he used actually is you know, unforgivable. I don't know that anything is unforgivable in life, but you know what he's, you know, Malenko's getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on to say, but I can't separate that from, you know, this friendship um, that I had with that guy. And there is still a lot of anger towards Chris Benoit. And I do understand it. And I don't think anyone looks casually on what Chris did to his family, but, I think that, you know, what's, what's the old saying? Anger, it's an old Buddhist saying, anger is a punishment we give ourselves for the mistakes of others. I think it's always a good idea to unburden yourself of anger and to do whatever it takes to unburden yourself from anger. Forgiveness is a whole separate issue. 
Uh, and Sandra does mention that towards the end of the documentary. But I think it's important not to carry around anger. What's it's like? It's like uh, what? Do, 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 do. Anger is uh, swallowing poison and expecting the other person to get sick. That's kind of what anger is. And I think anything that anyone in this documentary can do to unburden themselves of an anger that they have at Chris, I think is ultimately a good thing. I, I thought Sandra's comments at the end were may, maybe for me, like kind of the most, most powerful line in, in this whole documentary, the notion of being able to forgive Chris at some point and stating that at some point she believes she will be able to. I think that she, to me, comes across, um, you know, she is somebody that knows this case inside and out. Uh, Chris Jericho has studied this extremely. Like, you know, he's had all the principles on his podcast. And I think ultimately it's been a therapy for him to go through a friend of his and trying to understand something that you're not going to be able to come to any kind of rational conclusion because this is not something that is logical that happened. And it's, there's a frustration there and that probably comes with anger as well. But now 13 years removed, it seems that, you know, these people, they are struggling with someone that was a friend. And then this weekend occurred and they're kind of left with the, the remnants of this. And that to me with, with David Benoit, I don't know how you don't come away with this with just such a, profound sense of sympathy for this individual who was saddled with so much of this at a young age. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, one of the, the underlying stories in this entire, these entire two pieces um, is that as much as this is the story of Chris Benoit, and as you mentioned, this is almost equal parts, the story of Eddie Guerrero uh, as the two were, inseparable and let's not lose sight of another thing this is also a story about nancy and this is also a story um about daniel as well as much as it is stories about those four individuals this is also a story about the nature of 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 obsession and this is the story of balance and you know i remember you know barack obama would always talk about you're never great until you attach yourself to something that's greater than you and you know we've heard that before from you know various uh, philosophers and if you don't attach yourself to something that's greater for for uh, greater than you maybe that's where religion comes into it certainly for eddie guerrero certainly lower parts or other parts rather for for chris benoit um you know you can lead to this you know maniacal almost you know chasing the white whale herman melville moby dick type uh, uh type situation in your life and i think that's what, where chris found himself from the first time he saw the dynamite kid uh, in stampede wrestling where that is wow that is so spectacular and overwhelming like can you imagine john like seeing dynamite kid for the first time as a 14 year old encounter and seeing like there was nothing like it like there was nothing like tom billington at that nothing at all like that and you see that and you say i want to be that and that becomes your singular obsession for your entire life. And that was Chris. Like Chris set the standard for himself early and chased it and chased it every single day with everything that he did. I remember like even small, like tiny little things. And I know it's something that athletes do all the time and I get it. But I remember going to dinner with Chris once and I can't remember what we ordered, but he had a, a, a starter salad, like a Caesar salad. And I remember him sitting there, like meticulously pulling out the croutons. And here's a guy who's just like torn up like a bad report card. There's like, you know, like small single digit, you know, body fat uh, index. Like you can light matches off the guy. And here he is, you know, pulling tiny croutons out because there's no way 
that he's going to eat bread because he has a standard and an image of himself and he's not going to detour from that whatsoever. Like this is, this is the story of someone and Chris's story is the story of someone that chased something fanatically and had a standard for himself that he set when he was 14 years old. Now things happen along the ways that can cloud your brain, whether it's steroids, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as Chris Davinsky talks about, things that complicate your life, your life as you grow up as a pro wrestler that makes things that much more cloudy. But through all of it, like the one thing that you know Chris was still singularly focused on was wrestling and being that person that the 14-year-old Chris Benoit saw so many years ago. And you know, uh, Dynamite Kid is, you know, such a an enormous influence on Chris. You could say the biggest influence yep. on him from day one in professional wrestling. And I always go back. There, there was one show you did where you got the two of them on together. And it was yeah, Chris just, just professing, you know, what Dynamite Kid meant to him. And it's it would probably be very chilling to listen back to now. But just at that time, like, you could see that this is a guy who has – already achieved such great success, but in just pure awe of Tom Billington, who a very dangerous individual to look at in terms of a hero to model yourself after the there's good. There's a lot of bad as well with Tom Billington being kind of your compass. Uh, absolutely true. And you know, interesting sidebar point in the, in the piece as well, they point out with the diving headbutt and Harley race to Tom Billington to, to Chris Benoit. Um, I remember that day, Chris, because we were doing the website for dynamite kid and help publish the book. Um, at uh, at Live Audio Wrestling Inc. And I remember talking to Chris about how much he wanted to do that. And would it be possible to do it? And again, it's weird to hear it now because of course we have the technology to do it online. But back then I was like, I remember when I presented the idea to Chris, he was like, you can do that? It was like, it was like all of a sudden, wow, I actually get to do this. Like I can talk to, I can talk to Tom Billington and all as if, you know, Chris became like that fan you know, Chris from Edmonton, who was going to Stampede Wrestling all over again to see uh, to see the Dynamite Kid. I'll tell you, John, and maybe you know, but I don't. I would love to find that audio. I would love to find that audio of Chris talking to Tom. I have no idea where it is, though. Yeah, because those were when you were doing those audio updates. They were just going like these. These weren't on the radio. They were just straight up onto the respective websites at, at the time. Yeah. Their um, podcast. Yeah, Their it's. Podcast. And it's funny because I, I never really put this together until I was getting set to talk to you and that, you know, the, the Benoit story, it's just one that I, I, I spoke to Benoit over the years. I interviewed him a handful of times, but I yeah. definitely did not have a relationship with Chris Benoit, but it's, it's a story that just, it sticks with me deeply. And I definitely wonder if it's the fact that, you know, if you were following the law at that time, listening to Chris on a very regular basis, you got to see a lot more than just Chris Benoit, the wrestler. I remember you interviewing Chris days removed from Daniel's birth. It's like it's very different oh, when you have those kinds of recollections of him in his own words throughout his career, through the highs, through the frustrations. He was a fairly open individual when it came to discussing his career and I think just adds to the weight of that entire 2007 ending. Totally true, and I can remember him talking about Daniel. We'd all, we would talk about uh, about Daniel often. Um, I can, geez, I can remember when. It's just coming back to me now. I remember which pay per view was it where he 
um, where he lost the title to Randy Orton in Toronto. That was here, the SummerSlam that year. That was summer. Okay, that was. So I remember being in the private box with Nancy and Daniel um, uh, when he was when he was uh, doing the honors for uh, for for Randy and. Now Nancy was talking about you now how proud she was of him. This is going to be a tough day for Chris and all of that. And it, he would talk about Daniel so often uh, in conversation, and would talk about Nancy all the time. Like I can recall all the stuff that he would you know talk to me about uh, about Nancy and and Kevin Sullivan. Um, and I can I can recall the conversation on the air about Daniel, and I can also recall that. You know, he was, I remember when he called me to ask if, I remember if I called him or he called me the day that Owen passed away at Kemper Arena in, uh, in, in 99. But you remember that, uh, that evening, uh, and doing the law that day, he was one of the, he was one of the first to come on right away, uh, to talk about Owen. But like, this wasn't just, this wasn't just, you know, stereotypical, you know, thoughtless wrestler, like inside all of that you're right like he really presented a really tough veneer like he was a fire hydrant like he was a rock of a guy and you know he he wore it and that was the image but he was really like when it came to the important things in his life he was as soft and tender and genuine as nice a person as 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 you could ever want to meet yeah it's you know it was when when you were running the website and you were sending out like weekly newsletters and I started writing the Chris Benoit one. And I remember you brought mm. me into studio once for a, this was before I was uh, doing anything on the air or anything like that. It was just the web stuff, but you brought me in and, and Benoit happened to be the guest in studio and you introduced us together and just said, Oh, John does your newsletter. And I always just remember how he just, just looked right into my eyes and just oh, yeah. a real genuine <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And it was just like, I didn't think too much about what I was doing or anything, but it was, uh, you know, you look back and uh, just, you know, remember, like, this was a guy who seemed like extremely grateful for, you know, this 16, 17 year old kid that's just, you know, typing up some like Benoit results, for instance, on his uh, website, for instance. But um, he had that effect on people that got to know him, but it was a very, small number that that let him in yeah he was i mean he was grateful you would do anything for him and he'd go out of his way to, to to thank you i remember um uh the band our lady peace um did his his theme song when the, the wwf was was getting um, established bands to do theme songs for the um uh for the various pro wrestlers i remember the jeremy taggart who played drums in the band is a good buddy of mine and um, he's also a huge wrestling fan. Boy, do we have a falling out over Chris after that happened. We're friends now through it, but um, I can recall like when Chris, when I introduced Chris to Jeremy, uh, I think it was after a house show in Toronto, because he really wanted to thank him for like putting that piece of music together for him. And Jeremy thought this was the coolest thing in the world that, wow, Our Lady Peace gets to do a, a theme song for a, for a wrestler bonus that it's a Canadian and bonus that it's Chris Benoit. And I don't know who was more appreciative, whether it was, it was Chris or whether it was, it was Jeremy Tiger, but I mean, he specifically said, Hey, next time I'm in Toronto, can I meet Jeremy or can I meet these guys? And I said, well, Tiger for sure. Like we go to the shows all the time and yeah, whether it was, you know, 15 year old John Pollock or whether it's, you know, late twenties, Jeremy Tiger from our lady peace. If you did something for Chris Benoit, he went out of his way to, let you know how much he appreciated it. 
Uh, obviously, there's no WWE involvement in this uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode. So by default, nope. Jim Ross kind of finds himself in the position of answering for the WWE's decisions at that time. I definitely felt like there was certainly a, a line of questioning uh, regarding the wellness policy that Jim Ross could be that could be directed at him. Uh, but mm -hmm. to me, I'm also looking at it from the sense Jim Ross is doing this sit down and had this all been one sit down, this guy's covering Benoit. He's probably being interviewed for the, the night Owen died. I, I do sympathize with Jim Ross kind of having to relive some horrific moments, including having to discuss the decision to hold that tribute show for Benoit the night of. And I'm just kind of interested in your thoughts of how Jim Ross comes across in this and the WWE as a whole, how they are presented uh, in terms of their handling of everything involving this. Well, the wellness policy was, policy was criticized soundly, and um, I, I, I do think fairly. Um, listen, uh, Chris passed a lot of drug tests. <laughs> like Chris passed a lot of drug tests, and a lot of guys uh, at that time passed a lot of uh, passed a lot of drug tests. Um, I, the only the only thing that I the only thing that I had a problem with was the idea of putting knowing what we know now about. CTE. And again, this isn't to give someone a free pass, but you can do under you do understand a fuller picture um, of the person. You know, the hard and fast. You know, no way should this guy ever be allowed in the uh, the WWE Hall of Fame. I do like uh, Jericho's idea of Nancy mm -hmm. going into the Hall of Fame, but I do think that it shouldn't just be a knee jerk. That no, there's no way. There's no way this guy can go into the Hall of Fame. I do understand that. Listen, the rest of the world doesn't care what the motivation was or what Chris's brain was like when this happened or care to peel back, um, peel back the curtains on what was going on in his life and what happened to all this because what Chris did was atrocious, was horrible and unthinkable. I do understand all that. But I think we're at a place now understanding what we do about neuroscience that we can at least have the conversation and start to begin to understand a little better what was Chris Benoit's brain at the time when all of this happened. It's tricky, man. Like I get it. Like I, I want to be as, as compassionate um, as the next person yet at the same time, you still want to be angry because what Chris did was unconscionable. I think the, the question that we do have is, how much was he mentally aware of what he was doing, i.e. How much, how much responsibility does he bear for all of this? And I think at least right now, we're far enough removed from the initial event, and I think we understand enough about brain science that at least right now we can begin to have the conversation. In terms of, you know, when, uh, first of all, how did you first find out about the news that we, that that Monday? Uh, Dave Meltzer called me. I just got home from work. I was living uh, in the East End in Toronto uh, at the beaches, and I got a phone call from Dave, and he said, "Have you heard about Chris?" And I said, "No. What happened?" And he said, "Chris, Nancy, and Daniel are dead. It sounds like there might have been a gas leak at the house." This would have been Monday afternoon. I can't remember what time. Might have been about three o'clock Eastern. Right. And for what? And for whatever reason, 
stupid, eh, John? For whatever reason, my first thing was to call Chris to call yeah. his cell. I don't know why. <laughs> but that was my first instinct. And then started making making other calls around uh, to find out more about this. But my first, and even to this day, I, I can't, I still haven't erased Chris's number from my phone. Stupid, right? No, it's not, it's not uncommon. I mean, I've, I've known people that have died that I too have not deleted numbers. It's, um, it's a strange, um, you know, commonality. I think, I, I don't think it's, uh, necessarily uh, strange at all. Um, it, in terms of, did you, you and I actually talked that night because you did come on the next day with myself and Maura Ranallo, um, to discuss this. Um, mm-hmm. did, did you sit and, and watch that, that show that night, the, the raw that they did? Yes, I did. And it was, again, we didn't like, th- this is the one thing that I will give, I, I will defend the WWE, WWE on is they didn't, ha- they didn't know. Like, cor- correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, again, the memory sort of hazy on this a little bit, but as far as timelines go, there, there is, point, we, we, yeah. we really didn't know, did we? Well, there was Dave, Dave Meltzer has since said that, that he did get a call about two hours before the show and that it, he, he's never revealed who it was, but his conclusion is that people at the top of WWE had to have known at least that it was being investigated as such, because that is what Chris's parents had been told they were investigating. I, I don't paint it as black and white that this was just some callous move that was it simply who knew was it in strict denial that there was there was no way that could have been true that they just pressed forward i i'm not quick to condemn a decision either way on it but yeah it it's it's certainly been debated like who who exactly knew at, at the time and the fact that the USA network as well did air the the replay of raw which was numerous hours later how much you put at like what the responsibility level was it's it's a horrific tragedy and you know i think it comes down to similar to the wwf continues with the owen show i mean that's a decision in hindsight that looks awful um in that moment um you know some benefit of the doubt i guess should be reserved there's there's a couple of things one i always think in situations like that it's best to cancel what you're planning on doing mm-hmm. and i think you put out some type of 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 statement um, but I mean, either way, if the WWE just would have put out a, you know, something at the beginning of the, of the show about Chris Benoit and then gone on and just done a, a regular show, they would have been slammed and perhaps rightfully so. Um, and they're, you know, been soundly trashed about, you know, the decision that they made, um, to do the Chris Benoit, uh, tribute show. I mean, the, the Owen thing at, at Kemper one, yeah, if you're the WWE, I think you shut it down, but two, I'll always look back at kansas city and say where were the police that was a potential crime scene that should have been stopped right there and the yellow tape should have gone around and everybody should have been told to go home because we may need to investigate what might be a homicide um so i'll always look at the kansas city authorities in temporary at that point and say as much as it was distasteful for the wwe to do what they did uh i harbor most of my uh, uh anger um at the kansas city police um, in that situation, I still have not been able to get an answer as to why they didn't shut that down after someone passed away um, in front of everybody, um, or at least a significant accident had happened in front of everybody, uh, which could have been who knows what. Um, but I, I, I still do wonder, you know, what, 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 
Like I always put myself, okay, if I have two hands on the wheel, if I'm Vince McMahon at that point, what would my decision be on that Monday when they found, when they found the news out? Now I have the, I have the benefit of hindsight being 2020 and maybe I'm talking, you know, a lot of shit from the back seat. Um, but I would like to think that at that situation, my default is always stop everything. And after you put, if you have to put on alternative programming, if you have to put on a repeat, something. But my instinct is always stop. But this sort of winks at your point early uh, from a couple of seconds ago, which is there is that show must go on mentality. We have to do something. I mean, look at the look at the current the current climate. Like everyone shut down except for a handful of pro wrestling companies including WWE at the moment. I mean, that if you want an analogy of Vince McMahon, this is an individual that will wake up in the morning, look outside and see a snowstorm, shut the windows and look up and say, I disagree and expect to have a debate. Like this is a guy that the real world is not going to adjust his. And I think that that has been a pattern throughout this man's career is that the real world is not stopping mine. Have I ever told you the kind of the, um, the story from the conversation that I had with, with Vince in Stanford? No. So this is when, uh, this is after Owen passed away and I was writing for Off the Record. And we went to Stanford, Connecticut um, uh, to do a, a couple of different uh, interviews. Uh, one was a one-on-one Landsberg with Vince. Um, there was another one, I think it was Vince and Linda. And then the kids were in one as well. Um I remember a conversation, this is right out the day after, maybe a couple of days after uh, Hulk Hogan uh, was on Larry King and Terry was trashing uh, Vince and the, the WWF. And I asked him about it. I said, did you see Hogan on, uh, on Larry King? And he said, yeah. And I said, what'd you think? And he you know, took off his glasses and it was like almost he went to promo mode. But th- th- this to me sort of hints at what you're talking about too. He said, uh, look, I'm a carnivore, and when I sit down to eat, I want the biggest, juiciest piece of meat that I can find. That's what's on my plate. And if it makes my stomach upset in the morning, so be it. Wow. That, to me, John Pollock, is Vince McMahon. That, that's the quote to put at the top of the Vince McMahon story <laughs> like that encompasses everything. That's a, yeah. an unbelievable story that he yeah. whipped out that analogy to compare. And yeah. it's I'm com- sure, I'm, completely I'm sure accurate. I'm, not the only, I'm sure I'm not the only one he's used that promo on, but it always stuck with me. Um, just looking at a, a little bit of, of the fallout. So just the timeline in place here. So in 2007, when this occurs, um, this is when you're full time doing hockey at this point. Yeah. I'm, ve- I'm very curious if you had ever given a thought of, had it been several years earlier, you're still covering wrestling. What does that Sunday night show start like with you? Oh, wow. Um, I think it would be a lot like the, that Sunday night show. Now, by then we would have had all the answers. Or at least some, Yes. At least we would have had a, 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 a better picture of it. I always find that it's good to let people release things and just give people uh, the floor to talk. Um, and that's why I, I do, um, in, as far as editorial um, instinct, I do like the idea of just like putting out the microphone and letting whomever wants to come on, come on. I think for me, it would have been 
uh, it would have been, if, if we had known all the information, it would have been challenging for me um, as a broadcaster to probably separate, just like Malenko talked about in the, in the piece, to separate my friendship from that act. Because as heinous as it was, that wasn't the guy that I knew. Um, I think that it would be, I don't want to, I think tribute is, is too strong. I think this would, would have been a, that would have been a live audio wrestling show where we would have invited as many people in Chris's orbit and Nancy's orbit to come on the show and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about um, without bias, without pity, without pedestal to just go on and talk. I would imagine that that would have been my editorial instinct on it. Was there a part at that time, that week, that it's a story you wanted to be covering or was having, you know, the, I think, I did think you want that close. distraction? I think it would have been too close to it, John, to, to be, to be blunt. I think, I think that was, that wouldn't have been, Again, like not that I ever consider myself, you know, to to be a journalist or anything, but I think I would I would have been too close to the story um, to be uh, in any way uh, a credible authority on it at that time. It was still like I was I was stunned. We were all stunned, you know. I was confused uh, about all of it. I think part of me was in disbelief that there had to be some other explanation um, that this wasn't the Chris. Benoit that I knew so geez John maybe perhaps the best thing was that we said I wasn't uh doing the show at that point because I don't know that I could have been any type of credible broadcaster at that moment it's it's also I mean you're you're kind of removed from you know doing the 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 law at this point but after Mm -hmm. after Eddie had passed do you remember kind of like, were you and Chris keeping up with one another during the, those last few years? I mean, did you yep. have, not, give me a sense as, of Chris as, a, after that, not, that not, death. Yeah, that shook him hard. Like, like he would, I mean, obviously like he would talk about Eddie. We, you know, funny, we would talk a lot about, we would always talk about Japanese wrestling. Um, but he talked a lot uh, about the matches and he talked a lot about um, the family. He talked a lot uh, about Vicky. He talked a lot about Chavo. I'm glad that those two were prominent um, in this documentary and he just talked about like, and he would cry a lot, um, naturally. And, but it almost as if, you know, he, I mean, he, he wanted to bring it up a lot. Like I never wanted to bring up. And again, we weren't talking, this wasn't the time where Chris and I were talking every day. Um, but whenever we would talk, a lot of it revolved around Eddie and Japan and friendships and loss and, you know, just how profoundly, you know, hurt he was. And I don't want to say directionless because he would talk a lot about his own family, but he would always talk about how a big piece of him was gone now that, uh, now that Eddie wasn't around anymore. And I mean, some people forget as well that it wasn't just Eddie in this time period, but uh, Victor Marr, Black Cat, who was a big yeah. influence on his career, Johnny Grunge, who was, you know, in that circle of his, uh, they died yeah. both back to back just months after Eddie. It was, I think like a compound sense of loss that this individual was going through. And just the fact that he was so willing to talk about it with you, I, th- I think you can certainly look like this was a guy looking for something he was grasping. Yeah. And I would, listen, I would imagine, listen, I'm not like, uh, I'm not like, I wasn't, you know, Chris's therapist and I wasn't like the only person that he would have confided in. Like, 
I mean, he would confide in there were a lot of people that were closer to him, uh, certainly than I was. Um, so I have a hard time believing that, you know, he wouldn't, you know, have talked to Nancy uh, about all of this, that he wouldn't have talked to Vicky about all of this or anybody else um, that was around him uh, at, at that time. Um, he felt pretty safe talking to me about uh, how he felt um, about all aspects of his life and, and pretty much all aspects of the, of the wrestling business at the same time. But yeah, there were there were other people I'm sure that he shared even you know even more deeper feelings than he did with me. Did this kind of distance you from the industry at this point? Like that? Like what was your relationship no. or with pro wrestling by by this point? As you know, you're you're a busy individual, but are you still keeping up with it? And did this you know curb that at all? And uh, it didn't really curb it. Like honestly, like nothing's. This may not sound really good, but it, nothing's ever happened in wrestling that's stopped me from watching it. The only thing that's ever stopped me from watching on a consistent basis is my job, where mm-hmm. I'm sort of 24-7 covering um, hockey right now. Otherwise, I would be watching all the shows. And, you know, right now, like, <laughs> it's funny. I, I my, my wormholes tend to be going back and watching, you know, All Japan Pro from 1993, um, which is the best era of pro wrestling in, in in japan as far as i'm concerned um or i'll go back and watch old awa but I, I i at that point i wasn't following it on a consistent basis i would try to watch an hour of raw um every week and maybe that, that would pretty much be about it seldom would i ever get a chance to watch pay-per-views i'd always try to go out of my way to watch mania but at this point i was uh you know a i was doing hockey on a full-time basis and was very, very casually watching wrestling, if at all. But it, it wasn't it wasn't as if this soured me on the industry. And I know it did sour a lot of people. A lot of things have. I know Owen soured people on the industry. I know Benoit soured people on the in, in the industry. I get it. I understand all of that. I know a number of the deaths um, and how they were handled uh, soured people on the industry. But I've never I've never been one of those people. We can conclude on this. I mean, by the end of this, when you, you finish the documentary. Are there questions remaining for you that came out of this? Are there still um, – does this put any any sense of closure on, on this period, and is that even possible? No, I don't think I don't think closure. I don't think it's anything that's ever going to be closed. I mean I still think we're looking for reasons, and, and we'll never get them. I think the best thing that we can get out of all of this, I know certainly with me, is you have to come to a place where even if you don't understand it, you just have to be settled with that's the reality. And I know I've referenced, you know, Malenko in, uh, in in our talk today, John, a lot, but I really, I really think that that um, you know what he talked about when he said, you know, the the actions are unforgivable, but I can't separate that from the car rides and the matches and the friendships, and I just like to leave it at that. Like I think that's where a lot of people are. And I know that's where I'm at. Like I can't, you know, I'm married, I have a family, I've got three kids. You know, I I can't fathom you know, doing that to your family. I can't. Um, and I also can remember Chris Benoit the, the way that I remember him. And in no way, shape, or form, I, I, I can't join those two things. Like, there's still a disconnect with that Chris Benoit that I knew and those actions by Chris Benoit. There's never There's no understanding bridge between those two things. And so I think at best, you just sort of try to settle yourself with, you know, there was this thing that happened with a friend 
and I'm probably never going to understand it. None of us are, but we've all got to find a place where we're settled with it and can at least try to, to move on. Um, even if we don't want to have any sort of conversations about it or try to understand, have any sort of greater understanding of, of what happened. I think that Malenko, the Malenko part towards the end where he talks about, and I just want to leave it at that, I think sums up uh, a lot of people. I don't think that he'll ever understand it. I know I will probably never understand it. And I don't think I'm in the minority there, John. Yeah, I, I think that summarizes it perfectly. Like when this happened, I was I was single in 23. Watching it now, both of us now as fathers. Um, oh, that, everything changes. It all changes, John. I, it's completely di- like there was a period where I was like everyone trying to understand how could this happen. I think at the end of this for me, I've realized I'll never understand. I just as a father, there's just there's no way. There's no answer that will to me co- come. I'm not. I'm not seeking that that kind of answer at this point any longer. There are some things that you just cannot explain through all the theories that are out there, through all that's on the table. Um, there's different ways you can look at this, but it's ultimately – it's horrific. And there's two victims in all of this, in, in Nancy and Daniel, and a living one too in David that I think really gets overlooked. And I, I really felt for this guy who still in this documentary classifies his father as his hero, even though – he would have every right to be as angry as anyone about just being an innocent victim in all of this that had to kind of move forward and carry this on. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to sum up David, too. That's a great way to talk about him. I mean, he was and, and you can understand like his dad is his hero. And then when you're like, I think it, it forces us to, you know, to, to think about the nature of, you know, heinous acts like this by people that we love and whether we have the kid. Not whether we have the capability to do it, but whether we all find a place where we have the capability to at least understand might be too strong but to get settled with it and just try to to move our lives forward because you know as i mentioned you know uh, about a half an hour ago like we there's no point in hanging on to anger i i understand the toffoloni family harboring anger i i get that and it sounds as if sandra is starting to at least move away from that a little bit but there is, we only do harm to ourselves I think, John, if we hold on to anger too long, and I don't think that that's beneficial for anybody. I think that enough time has passed here that we can start to at least move on to trying to have a deeper conversation about it that isn't just reflex and knee-jerk. And I think this documentary uh, does go a long way, at least to starting that conversation. Uh, Well, Jeff, I said it uh, before we even started rolling. Uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining me. I always enjoy talking with you. I hope the next time we get to do one of these, we can do it in person. Uh, I hope that our our world is uh, back to normal at that point where we won't have to rely on uh, technology and phones. But I'm glad it exists. So we got to do this conversation. Um, I know this is, uh, you know, a very difficult one, but um, you were the person I want to speak with the most about this. So uh, a big thank you. I really appreciate that and a virtual handshake uh, from my home office up here in Stovall, Ontario. Thanks, John. It was my pleasure.